the policy in Washington is sort of, you got this far left um, that thinks that, uh, that, that takes positions that are economically unviable. And then you've got far right that would say, oh, climate change isn't real. Well, the reality is that there's a lot in between, um, a lot of conservative, sensible, uh, Republican policies about conservation that make sense. And I can tell you, the hope is not within the walls of the COP25. The hope is out here with you. It's week two of the United Nations COP25 Climate Summit, and it's the last few days of Congress before the winter recess. What have American policymakers accomplished? We get an update from the U.S. Climate Action Center on site at the U.N. Climate Talks, and we discuss 12 pieces of energy legislation that Republicans are calling on Democrats to support. Plus, a prominent former senator weighs in on the climate, energy, and security nexus and how to avoid the game of political football that climate policy has become today. Later in the show, we speak to former Republican Senator Kelly Ayotte about what she calls common sense solutions to combating climate change. This is Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I am Julia Piper, your host, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, and a contributing editor at Green Tech Media. On the line today, we have Shane Skelton, our Republican, a partner at S2C Pacific, and a former energy advisor to Paul Ryan. And with me here in LA is Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, a partner at Boundary Stone Partners, and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. A quick note that next week will mark our last official episode of the 2019 season, and it will feature an interview with David Roberts of Vox, and so you won't want to miss it. And then we'll be on a short break over Christmas and New Year's, which is a great time to catch up on previous episodes if there's something you haven't caught yet, like maybe our interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger about pollution or our interviews with teen climate activists from all over the country, or you could catch our talk with UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres or astronaut Scott Kelly. We've had a really great season of guests and and those episodes are always available wherever you get podcasts. Just search for Political Climate and press play. All right, logistics are out of the way. So, Brandon, it's a big week for California. Did you know that the state just hit a million solar roofs? I saw that. That's, you know, a huge accomplishment for our sponsor, you know, Governor Schwarzenegger, and really excited. That's a lot of a lot of solar. Yeah, what's interesting is that they're hosting this event in the Central Valley. I think of a lot I think a lot about the clean tech industry in California being, you know, here in LA and largely in the Bay Area, but a lot of the solar is actually deployed in the inland parts of the of the state yeah, and a lot of them there's a lot of land <laughs> right and sun and farmers are deploying this i remember i looked at some of the numbers that the solar trade group in the state released and there's something like ten thousand solar roofs in the town of clovis where they're doing this announcement and then 2700 in berkeley and so you know it just kind of maybe tweaks your perception of who adopts solar so california is an interesting case study and we have to remember that while there's a democratic supermajority there are, there are Republicans in this state, and a lot of them are in that Central Valley region, and still they see a role for clean energy. It's an important point. We're never going to get the policy action we need if this issue is seen as a coastal urban issue. Which I think it does still struggle with. 
Well, let's now go international and touch base on the COP25 climate talks in Madrid. Greta Thunberg, the youth climate activist, drew apparently more than 500,000 people to a big rally in central Madrid uh, last Friday. And it was again to encourage global leaders to step up their game. She said, we are getting bigger and bigger and our voices are being heard more and more. But of course, that does not translate into political action. And indeed, we're seeing so far at the climate talks that there's a lot of debate around Article 6, which is rules that would establish uh, carbon markets. It's part of the Paris Climate Agreement. Sounds like there's not much consensus on that. Uh, Some of the world's largest economies have not stepped up their commitments uh, under Paris. And they've also removed some language that would protect human rights and indigenous rights under the Paris Agreement. So we have this kind of bifurcated picture of like a lot of people in the streets, this youth movement growing louder. And yet we really see the actual decision makers waffling, I think. And and there's certainly not a united front at this point. So I, I have some thoughts on this, Julia, because I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Brandon flagged something, I think, in a previous episode where he said that a lot of people based on polling are not even aware that these conversations are taking place. And I'm not talking about COP and, 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 and NATO or, or the UN. I'm sorry. I'm talking about just general like climate policies and sort of what climate change is doing, how it's impacting us. And I've I've read a few articles to that effect lately as well. And I'm starting to wonder, are we living in two completely parallel universes? One where people in Madrid are arguing about certain nuances within Title VI. And I'm not saying, you know, this stuff isn't important. And and then we have a domestic uh, policy atmosphere. And I'm going to guess a lot of countries have this where, you know, 80% of voters or citizens really don't understand climate science, really don't have a good grip, even if they believe in, in climate change, I think most people do, don't have a grip on you know what it takes to remedy the problem, how severe the problem is. And I'm just becoming more and more concerned that the people who live in this world are becoming more and more disconnected. I, I don't mean the world, I mean the climate world, are becoming more and more disconnected than the average citizens. And that might not be a good thing. I, I, don't, I don't have a hard position on that, but it, it seems like there's a huge disconnect here. That could be true. I, I I do think that even if you're not engaged on these issues, the youth protests have captured people's attention. I, I've heard people who've never discussed climate with me in, in their lives mention, oh, hey, that, that Greta girl's interesting. Like things are actually breaking through um, where I think the disconnect is, is around that energy and then the action. Brandon, what do you think? If we remember in the Paris Agreement from several years ago, the United States really led on that. Uh, President Obama was very influential in getting China and India uh, to participate in that uh, agreement. And so now the U.S. has taken a step back, a dramatic step back. And I think we're seeing the impact of that. And I think, you know, climate change is the greatest challenge for humankind in this century. And In the past, the United States, when facing the greatest challenges, whether it was Nazism or whatnot, has led. And without our leadership, we're seeing the consequences of that. And we need to get Donald Trump out of office and get back into leading the world on this issue. Well, I guess my question is is not even on the substance of what you're saying. What I'm saying is, do you think most people are even aware of what you just said? My experience with voters is... uh, they do not focus on process. And so I think the general voter knows that climate is a problem. Uh, It's happening. It's man-made. There needs to be solutions. 
and on the process of like what's happening in Paris, like our countries coordinating together and what are those binding agreements or non-binding agreements? Are they, are they stepping up their targets or not? I, they're clearly not paying attention to that. I wonder how much that matters. It's, it's one thing to care about the impacts of climate change, but does everyone have to care about how the policies are structured? I mean, I don't care about video gaming regulation. It doesn't mean that people aren't doing stuff on it. I don't know, you know? Well, I also think this is what Greta is trying to say, is like adults have a responsibility here. It's not, you know, the average voter doesn't have to spend time on Article 6. There's a responsibility of leaders to, you know, address this issue, and they're failing. And that's why the youth are pissed and they have every right to be. Absolutely. And I, and I won't belabor the point. I guess what I mean is they could spend, you know, UN has access to money and, and they, they get press and all that sort of stuff. And my point is maybe they should focus more on making a digestible case to the public to make it a more pronounced kitchen table issue than debating, you know, specific provision, provisions in the process. I, I guess we're making the same point. We just view it differently. I'm saying they should focus all their energies on getting the public on board and then worry about like how to amend word eight in section two of title six later. I think you need both, right? I mean, awareness, yes, but you need to have structures in place and laws on the books to turn that awareness into action, right? And a lot of the news this week may sound like UN speak, but you know, the article six stuff will affect how virtually every other country in the world besides the United States uh, contributes to reducing emissions or not. So, you know, these wonky talks, if they break down, it could even collapse the Paris Agreement altogether. So so while some people may hear about these UN climate talks and roll their eyes or they don't even hear about them at all, there are some big decisions being made this week. And I think the question is whether or not the U.S. will be part of them. With that said, I know some stakeholders would push back on the notion that there is no engagement on climate, specifically here in the U.S. Just this week, America's Pledge, a coalition tracking city, state and business climate action, released a report that found bottom up initiatives do carry weight. And to your point, Shane, if we're seeing states and cities and businesses step up on their own, it's it seems like someone's getting this message outside these you know U.N. conference halls. So. I actually hopped on the phone with Carla Frisch, a principal at the Rocky Mountain Institute who has over 10 years of experience working with the Department of Energy under Trump, Obama, and Bush administrations to get a better understanding of the impact of local climate action and what the overall mood is like this week at COP25. So here's a clip from that conversation. The mood today was certainly bustling. The big thing that I was focused on is attending events at the U.S. Climate Action Center. So within the COP venue, they have pavilions. So often these are led by particular countries. But WWF sponsored a pavilion that was called the U.S. Climate Action Center. And there we had all kinds of events that featured non-federal actors. We had all kinds of folks from all over the U.S., representing what's really happening on the ground in the U.S. on climate. And what is happening on the ground? I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the fact that the Trump administration is pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement. And I know that there's a strong you know, push and narrative around local action making, making up for that. But is it really? Is it enough? Right. There's an amazing amount of local action happening in the U.S. So America's Pledge is our project and I work on that with University of Maryland and World Resources Institute, along with us at Rocky Mountain Institute and supported by Bloomberg Philanthropies. And we really set out in America's pledge to, to answer that same question. What's happening on the ground in the U.S. and what does it add up to? So when we look at the coalition 
of cities, states, businesses, and others in the U.S. That coalition now has more than 3,800 members. It adds up to almost 70% of U.S. GDP, 65% of U.S. population, and more than half of U.S. emissions. Now, just zooming in there, almost 70% of U.S. GDP, that is bigger than the economy of China. So the coalition of actors in the United States who are committed to climate and are taking action, they are bigger than the economy of China and only second to the U.S. economy itself. So we looked at if you take the cutting edge leaders who are taking action on electricity, on all electric buildings, electric transportation, on sustainable forestry, and you scale those actions in the U.S., then we could get to up to 37 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. And then we ask, well, what if the federal government were to re-engage starting in 2020? So what if both Congress and the executive branch, the president and the agencies, were to take serious action on climate starting in 2020, building on that momentum from city, states, and businesses? And there we found that the U.S. could get to 49% below 2005 levels by 2030. And what's significant about that 49% is where we need to be going as the world right now is limiting emissions to 1.5 degrees C to limit the worst impacts of, of global warming. And that 49% is in line with a straight line path that would put the U.S. at net zero emissions by 2050, which is where we need to be for 1.5. So with this sustained and enhanced city, state, and business action, plus a re-engaged federal government, by 2030, the U.S. could be on a path that would set us up by 2050 to be contributing what we need to be contributing. That's interesting because clearly it's a mixed bag. You have that momentum that you're referring to at the local uh, business and state level, but clearly there would be a gap without federal action. When you think about this and take a step back, do you feel right now like the world is winning or or losing this fight against climate change? That's the tough question, right? Because I think when you, when you read the news and you hear about the impacts of climate and how they're affecting people right now all over the world and all over the U.S., sometimes it can feel like we're, we are losing the fight. But I'll say just coming from the past five days at the U.S. Climate Action Center at COP, I feel like we're making real progress. We had leaders from all over. We had presidents of universities. We had presidents of utilities, presidents of tribes, mayors. We had all kinds of states represented, and they were here because they want to learn from each other, learn from their colleagues around the world, and really tell the rest of the world what is happening in the U.S. And just hearing what they had to say these past couple of days is super inspiring. Brandon, a few moments ago, you mentioned the significance of the 2020 election. On that front, Democratic presidential candidate and major climate action donor Michael Bloomberg was in Madrid this week taking part in the America's Pledge event and underscoring his commitment to re-entering the Paris Climate Agreement if he's elected to office. Now, first of all, it's unusual to have a candidate take an international trip like that, particularly a candidate that just announced they're entering the race. Bloomberg's speech, I thought, was also interesting because, as we've discussed before, re-entering Paris is the most basic step that Democratic primary voters say they want to see taken. So I thought Bloomberg might have stepped up a little bit more in Madrid, uh, although I don't know exactly what I was expecting. Well, I think he's doing more in his climate week uh, that he is having 
he's he's running a bunch of digital ads. He's talking about wildfires in California. Uh, so I think this is actually really positive development. The more attention to this issue, the better. It'll force other Democratic candidates to react to that and and to continue to prioritize climate change. And the strategy that he's running, Michael Bloomberg's pathway to victory is that in the early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, the big four, you know, we'll call them Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Mayor Pete sort of split those states up. Maybe they each take one, and it's basically a draw coming out of those early states. And then you get into March, the you know, when many states are voting with big populations like California and Super Tuesday. And at that point, retail campaigning, like one-to-one voter contact, is less important because you just can't do it with, like, you know, millions and millions of people voting. At that point, having money and resources and ability to be on TV and running digital ads uh, is more important. And so that is what the campaign he's running. As just a fan of politics, putting aside Republican or Democratic politics, I sort of love this test case of Michael Bloomberg uh, for several reasons. One, he has unlimited money, so he can focus on the issues he finds to be most important. And he's a well-known commodity, meaning he can show up at COP and be you know, a welcome body and someone who can speak and, and get an audience. But also, he's not in elected office. Um, so unlike some of the senators who are going to have to preside over this impeachment trial, presumably, he can sort of spend his time doing what he wants to do and deliver a message that he wants to deliver and deliver it everywhere all the time with his money. I think it's going to be really interesting to see if Bloomberg can make some of these issues resonate in a way that other candidates cannot. And I don't know what the answer to that is, but I, I'm actually really excited to watch this unfold, which I can rarely say about a primary. Brandon, you mentioned the wildfires a moment ago. Bloomberg does have a new ad there called Smoke and Fire. He's apparently traveling to California to announce his policies to curtail uh, California's record wildfires. So we'll be looking out for that. Meanwhile, there's actually a settlement that was announced. Uh, Pacific Gas and Electric uh, reached a $13.5 billion settlement that will bring some relief to wildfire victims. Uh, The stock actually went up right after that. I think that shareholders were interested to see that uh, reconciled. But it sounds like, according to the reporting I read, it's mixed for the victims because part of their compensation comes in the form of PG&E stock. And so that was a bit of a slap in the face. People saying, you know, we don't want to own part of a company that did so much damage. Uh, But on the flip side, it sounds like there may be other ways to turn that stock into cash for them. Also, the New York Times reported that many of the victims will get a lot less money than they hoped for or really that they need. So some resolution here, but also some open questions for people in California who've had their lives affected by this catastrophe. We started the year in January with the PG&E bankruptcy, and now we're closing out the year with this $13.5 billion settlement. And I think in 20 or 30 years, when Julia, you are a famous documentarian and you're, you're making the movie about... What did they do in 2020? Did they actually take the action and save humankind or did they fail and now we're living in a Mad Max beyond Fury Road world? Oh, uh, I think we will look back at this story in 2019 of PG&E as, like a, as a milestone because this was the first real climate change bankruptcy and these settlements are big and that is going to have a big impact on that utility and others. And unless we start fixing this and getting this model right, I think you know, there's others that are at risk of being in that in that same scenario. What Brandon said is critically important. Um, I'm more forward looking on 
what is California going to do? What, if anything, is the federal government going to do? How are we going to, you know, fundamentally make adjustments to the system that allow us to proceed in a productive way? I'm concerned very much so about how we move forward because I haven't really seen the type of change that we need to see to ensure uh, that these things don't happen in the future and protect, you know, future utility, both utilities, ratepayers, um, citizens, property, wildlife from from you know future catastrophes. On that forward-looking note, uh, another piece of news on this front is that California has banned insurers from dropping policies that were made riskier by climate change. And this is something that I actually tweeted about saying, you know, as a layman, it is crazy to me that you would have an insurance policy your whole life, uh, you're, you know, you pay correctly, and then suddenly you just get it wiped out from underneath you because the insurance company is now more exposed to risk. It doesn't seem to make sense. And then people pushed back and said, okay, well, insurance companies have, can't be more liable than their assets. Like I, I get that there's a problem there. It's a, it's a free market and they have a right to withdraw their coverage, but it just seems wrong. You know, that is on the insurance companies for not evaluating climate risk in certain areas. They have actuaries on staff every day. That is their only job. And a consumer's job is to follow through on their agreement, I think. So I thought it was curious to see the state stepping in here and basically take this unusual step of, of banning the insurance industry from withdrawing certain types of coverage and, and putting the onus on them for miscalculating the cost of climate change. So I, I have pretty strong opinions about this, uh, which I hope we explore you know, in more detail at a later date. But I have mixed feelings about this specific action because the reality of it is that insurance has almost never reflected the true cost of the risk in areas that are, you know, prone to wildfires and areas that are prone to flooding. And there's several public policy reasons for that, you know, especially in, in lower lying states um, with flooding, the National Flood Insurance Program basically back end subsidizes it. So you're almost incentivizing people to move into unsafe areas. Um, from an insurance company perspective, they most certainly should not be dropping people off coverage when they most need them. And that's been a huge issue in my community because of the Thomas Fire and some of the other smaller fires over the last several years. At the same time, policymakers just need to decide how much they want to be involved in these natural disasters. Insurance companies should be able to set rates that fully um, recognize the cost of the risk. And policymakers need to decide if they want to help you know, subsidize those premiums, if they don't want to do that, if they want to have the risk of living in fire prone areas be borne fully by the consumer. I haven't fully fleshed out my opinions on that yet, but right now you've got, you know, inverse condemnation in California, which kind of makes the utilities partly liable for doing the insurance company's jobs, which is super bogus in the first place. And I think there needs to be an actual public policy discussion about what is the role of the insurer? What do they need to do if they want to operate within our state? Because you have the right to set state laws. And do we as a government want to subsidize premiums in areas that are higher risk? Or do we want to discourage people from living in areas that are higher risk? I don't know the answers to those questions, but that discussion needs to be had. When people say we're, it's too expensive to deal with climate and these policies that many Democrats are suggesting, here's your answer. I mean, people are already paying, whether it is the utilities and $13.5 billion settlements, or it is the insurance companies that, you know, are going to go bankrupt, or they have to raise rates that are so high that people can't afford them. The costs are, we're, we're bearing the burden of these costs already. So yeah. I think the question is, who bears most of the burden when and how, you know, 
companies, individuals, governments, you know, everyone will end up paying one way or the other. But I think that's where we're going to see so much tension playing out. And I should note that this California ban is actually just a one year moratorium preventing insurers from dropping customers um, alongside zip codes struck by recent wildfires. That covers around 800,000 homes around the state. So a year from now, things could change. But I did think that was an interesting move. All right, our last item here is going to Washington, D.C., where Republicans are actually putting pressure on Democrats, saying that they aren't stepping up enough on clean energy and climate legislation. They say that there are 12 bills currently in Congress that could pass right now with bipartisan support. This is from the Republican Energy and Commerce Committee. They point to the BEST Act, which would enhance R&D for grid-scale energy storage, the Use It Act, which we talked about before, which would promote carbon capture and utilization projects, other bills related to nuclear energy and resilient forests and things like that. So curious to see the Republicans stepping up here and saying that Democrats aren't doing enough. Uh, We have had some Democratic lawmakers on the show who've introduced bills in recent uh, weeks, including Representative Tonko talking about the net zero emissions bill by 2050, which is a big overarching bill, we should note, and doesn't necessarily have tons of detail. So two different approaches here to climate legislation. Brandon, what's your initial reaction when you hear Republicans saying Democrats aren't doing enough? I think many of those bills have bipartisan support. In fact, many of them, I think, have you know, passed out of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. In the House, we've talked about that the Democrats are going to put forward you know, comprehensive legislation that gets to net zero emissions by 2050. And I think a number of these bills could potentially be included in there. I think from the Democratic point of view, there's two questions, and I'm anxious to get Shane's thoughts on some of these. Number one... I think there is a chance to get some of those bills done this year where they could pass the House and get to the floor in the Senate. But the big question is, will the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, allow these to come to a vote? He has been uh, blocking so many bipartisan pieces of legislation. The question is, will he allow these bills to come to a vote? So I'm anxious to get Shane's thoughts on that. Number two... I think the question for Democrats that they're struggling with on some of these bills is it's just around the edges. So the question is, is this the house is on fire? Are we bringing a garden hose to the to the fight? And rather than, you know, what is necessary is this is an emergency. The entire fire department should be there. We should be passing bigger bills. Is that will the Republicans see this as we're going to pass some low hanging fruit together and we're going to build momentum and build to larger comprehensive legislation that will actually address the scale of the problem? Or is there a danger that Republicans pass these few smaller bills and then say, we've done climate, we're green too, and they move on and they never take it back up? So is this the beginning of the climate policy discussion and and agreements that we can reach together, or is it the end? The answer is yes. And that is to say that almost everything you said has, uh, in my view, a measure of validity to it. Um, but I still think that, that we need to do some of these things. So for example, I think you're right that, um, this is like bringing a garden hose, but I guess if I asked most people, would you like people working on your house on fire with a garden hose or watching and laughing? I think they'd prefer to have, you know, some water going to mitigate the impacts. Uh, and then there's some, some stuff that could be bigger. So the use it, but the house still burns down just to be clear under that scenario. 
uh, at least more slowly and 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 great. We're tortured. Some sort of chance of survival, but I don't disagree with you. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I'd always rather do something than nothing. That's just my sort of personality type. And then uh, the Use It Act. uh, I think that we are never going to reach any of our shared goals. I I truly believe we will never ever reach any of our shared goals without the ability to capture and carbon uh, and sequester carbon, both from uh, power generation, but also just atmospheric carbon, which is something I know. Um, Ernest Moniz and others are working on. So that's the kind of thing that may sound small now, but could actually be our savior. A resilient federal forest act. Uh, I've worked on that for years when I was um, dealing with the wildfire accounts on budget committee. I think I've mentioned to you guys before. There's no doubt that better forest management management practices would mitigate how much destruction wildfires cause. And so while I agree with you guys that, you know, if they take up all these bills, it doesn't make, you know, the world a perfectly safe place from climate. I do think that, you know, taking proactive measures is always better than not. Uh, to your other question, Brandon, I do think McConnell would take these up. I don't think he would take up every climate bill that the House sends his way, but I absolutely think these are things that Republicans support, that McConnell would put on the floor, uh, that would make a, a small improvement and maybe help fund the technologies of the future. But I do agree with you that you know, if they take up all 12 of these bills, it doesn't mean, okay, we're done. Uh, let's move on. So I see why the Democrats would want the negotiating leverage to have a more comprehensive bill. I totally get that. And I understand it. And I've, I've been parts of those efforts before. So I'm not going to pretend like this is an unheard of strategy, but at the same time, you know, we're all yelling that the house is on fire as Brandon said. And so looking for leverage in negotiations doesn't seem to me like, the, like for example, the garden hose sounds like a better strategy than leverage with no strategy whatsoever. Shane, do you think that there are conversations happening behind closed doors between Republicans and Democrats on the Hill? It seems like there's a lot that could get done with some of these bills that we're referencing, the 12 bills that Republicans are asking to be passed. We're going to talk more about the uh, clean energy tax credits that are on the table. It seems like there's some some stuff that could really get done in the next you know couple of months here. And then is there agreements behind the scenes that, okay, we could build to, you know, bigger, larger, more comprehensive legislation in the future? Is that, is that come down to some trust where maybe Republicans say like, hey, this is what we can do now while the elections are happening, but let's get through the elections and we think we can go a little bit further, uh, you know, in 2021. Do they have those conversations? Is there trust? Is that what it comes down to, you know, behind the scenes? A couple things. I mean, one, my understanding, especially of of some of these committees that are at play, is that right now there is not a lot of trust. And that has not traditionally been the case. I think, uh, and I'm not talking about one side and the other, I'm talking about both sides. Traditionally, um, the Energy and Commerce Committee has worked very, very closely. Um, There's been a lot of trust, I think, among the members. I think there probably still is amongst the staff. But um, I do think there has been some breakdown in trust on those committees. So I think that's a huge issue. I'm sure there are discussions behind the scenes about, you know, how to tackle this issue in a larger way. But honestly, I don't think it's as, as um, and I don't know this. I want to be clear with our audience. I don't know this. I kind of doubt that Republicans right now are saying, let's do this now and let's do more after the election. I doubt that conversation's happening. I think Republicans have come around to the idea that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. I think that many of the ones in charge um, of these committees believe that a good way to address it 
is through this innovation agenda. And so if I had to guess, Brandon, I do not think, I think there are, there are back channel discussions about, okay, come on, how do we work together on this? I think there are definitely those. I don't think there are probably back channel conversations on let's do this, um, this stuff now, let's do a sweeping bill next Congress. I, I don't know that, but I don't imagine that's the case. Well, Brandon, why can't it be all the about like, why wouldn't the Democrats take these wins on things like energy storage? And the Senate side has a lot of consensus around a number of these bills, uh, Lisa Murkowski and Joe Manchin in the Senate side. And we'll hear in a moment from former Senator Ayotte about that kind of collaboration. But why not do these near term wins? And then if you win again in 2020, you do the bold things then as well. Like, you know, you'll, you'll force a Republican's hand if you win the election. I mean, it does bring it down to that. But frankly, I think, as you've said, you're probably not going to get that big action without winning the election regardless. So I don't see why it can't be an and discussion rather than an or. Unless how this plays into the election is what Democrats are worried about. I think that's why it matters. And I'm trying to get at this question of is it the beginning or is it the end point in these discussions? Because I think Democrats think they may be able they may be able to attract Republicans to more comprehensive legislation by offering some of these things that Republicans care about on carbon capture, sequestration, or uh, advanced nuclear. Uh, but I think, you know, that's why it matters. Like we've seen in the past on public policy issues, Congress is not good oftentimes at dealing with many issues at once. And I think there's a fear that okay, if we agree to these smaller ones, then does that mean that Republicans are done dealing with climate? They're going to say, we're climate friendly too and use this to say, you know, we've done, we've, and it could be a form of greenwashing in that sense. Or is there uh, more room to work together beyond that? I bet Democrats are worried about the PR here too, because if Republicans help pass climate bills, then that becomes a talking point for them. I'm definitely not worried about Republicans being uh, viewed by voters as, uh, more uh, ambitious on climate change. No, but it allows them allows them to say, hey, look, we're not inactive. That's what I'm saying. That they're not probably going to be known as like climate champions, but they get to say, you know, we're doing something. I think that's right, Julia. And Brandon, what I would say is I don't think it's greenwashing at all. I think it's something in between. I think if you were having, you know, a truth serum conversation with a conservative Republican who also wants to address climate, I think you'd get something like this. Um, big fan of renewables. I want to see continued expansion of both renewables and storage. Here's what the numbers say right now our generation resource mix looks like. So there's a huge chunk of this that needs to be filled with nuclear and fossil fuels. I think a question an honest Republican would ask is, how do we continue to use and take advantage of our mass bounty of natural gas as a generation resource and do it in a way where we're not you know, creating the emissions profile. And so I think the questions are different. For the Republicans, it's, you know, we have this gas. It's a cleaner generation resource than coal. We've got renewables, but they don't fill 100% of the need today. How do we use this resource in a safe and clean way? And I think a lot on the left are saying that resource is off the table. So when you look at some of the bills Republicans are promoting, it's carbon capture, it's battery storage, but there's also um, some stuff on on LNG and different ways to use gas. I don't think any Republicans are within the next couple of years going to say, let's only use renewables. I do think there's a ton of room for a discussion about 
how do we use our bounty in a, in a safe way with a reduced emissions profile? And I think there's just a big disagreement on both sides as to whether or not you can have a 100% renewable grid uh, within the near future, or if natural gas and nuclear have to be a part of that solution. I know nuclear is carbon free, but there's other debates around that. So I don't think it's greenwashing as much as it's a fundamental difference in opinion of what the resource mix needs to look like. Republicans are saying, going to be a lot of natural gas. How do we make that clean? Democrats are saying no natural gas, um, go away. And I don't know how they bridge that divide. Yeah. I mean, my sense is that the way to bridge the gap is to do all of it, like invest money to do R and D on carbon capture sequestration. If you have to, I mean, it's just that when my experience with those issues, I was at the Department of Energy and we had to deal with future gen. It was a really sensitive topic because it was in Illinois, which is the state of Senator Dick Durbin <laughs> and where Barack Obama's from. Uh, and every time they came back to us, it was like, oops, it's more expensive. Oops, it's more expensive. Oops, it's more expensive. And when you look at batteries and renewables, it's like, Every time they come back, it's like, oh, it's getting cheaper. It's getting cheaper. Future Gen was what exactly? Just yeah. I'm sorry, it was a carbon capture, you know, sequestration plant in Illinois. Uh, and so, look, if 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 the R and D uh, comes up with a great solution and we're able to then deploy it, fantastic. So I'm not against spending money to find out if if it can work. But right now, it hasn't been proven to be cost competitive yet. But batteries and and renewables continue every single day to get cheaper. Well, the, the point on that front is going to be whether or not Congress decides to extend uh, tax credits for wind and solar and perhaps expand them to other technologies like energy storage. So to your point, they're getting cheaper, but the industry is still seeking policy support to get more of this technology out in the world. And this is an issue I think we'll really see play out in literally the next couple days before Congress breaks. Yeah, it's been kind of flying under the radar screen. I mean, these bills are very consequential. It could mean up to... Uh, you know, five million or five, you know, and a half million more EVs deployed in the next 10 years if some of these tax credits go through. So this is highly consequential. And I hope Democrats stay firm and committed and really, you know, drive for this to be in the final deal. Shane, what do you think? I think I agree with everything you just said, but more importantly than the fact that you and I agree, I think most congressional Republicans and Democrats agree on everything you just said. I think traditionally the tax extenders have been a bipartisan effort. Well, to round out this show, we're going to hear from someone who worked on these issues directly as an elected member of the Senate. So let's turn now to my interview with former Republican Senator Kelly Ayotte of New Hampshire. Kelly Ayotte was elected to the Senate in 2010, having previously served as New Hampshire's Attorney General. During her tenure on Capitol Hill, Ayotte served on the Senate Armed Services, Budget, Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committees, among others. Since leaving office, Ayotte has joined the board of several prominent companies, including investment firm Blackstone and the fuel cell company Bloom Energy. She also became an advisor to Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions, a nonprofit organization founded to engage Republican policymakers on energy and environmental issues. I had the chance to speak with Ayat over the summer at the Atlantic Council's Veterans and Energy Summit. We covered an array of topics like the role of natural gas in the U.S. energy mix and where she sees opportunities for bipartisanship on climate policy. Because we were at a veterans event, I started by asking her about the linkages between climate, energy, and security and whether or not those interconnected issues are understood within Congress. 
I think most people understand that there is a direct connection between energy and security uh, in the Congress. I, I think it was more acute for someone like me because I served on the Armed Services Committee and I would hear time and time and again from our military leaders acknowledging the impact of weather events or climate or other issues that relate to energy on their actual movements in the military, um, on their ability to deploy, on strategic decisions, on resource issues, on um, what they could do in the field. All of those things are interconnected. So I think sometimes in Congress, uh, most people would acknowledge a direct connection between the two, but I don't know if they think as much about how it impacts the day-to-day lives of our military and what our military does in terms of their execution of keeping the nation safe. Yeah, I was interested to hear you say climate change there, because I think there is an understood connection to, say, oil resources in the Middle East and the connection to security. I'm wondering how the climate piece plays in. Is that as well understood? We do know that there are reports from the military itself talking about bases being vulnerable to climate change and things like that. But as you know, this can be a partisan issue. So I'm curious how you see the climate piece factoring in. Well, I think whether it was military that served under the Obama administration or our military leaders serving under the Trump administration, the service chiefs and our military have acknowledged that climate impacts some of their strategic decisions. So I think uh, the military has already drawn a direct connection there, and I don't think that's dependent on which party is really uh, in the White House. The military has already sort of accepted this fact, and they've testified about this before Congress on many, many occasions, including fairly recently. Do you feel like the country is doing what it needs to do to protect itself against the security threats of climate change? Well, I think the country is, uh, there's more we could do. We are doing some things that are very positive, and a lot of it's actually happening in the private sector, because when Washington's in gridlock, you see um, many companies actually acknowledging that we want to not only save money um, because we don't want to worry about the volatility often of fossil fuels, but we also uh, see it as a benefit to our consumers of being um, protecting the environment, conserving. And uh, post-Senate career, I serve on a number of public company boards. And I can tell you in every uh, board room and major company At some point or another, you're talking about sustainability um, and how are you actually thinking about how do we reduce our emissions? So that is happening in corporate boardrooms across this country right now, even if Washington sometimes gets stuck. How did you personally get engaged on these issues, environmental issues? It's been a few years. I know you've spoken out on on climate change. You've acknowledged it. And you're engaged with the Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions, a nonprofit in D.C. that works on clean energy and and clean energy solutions. So why? Why did you get involved? Um, I get involved because I very much firmly believe I'm a Republican. I'm a conservative. And if you're a conservative, you're for conserving everything. And I happen to come from a gorgeous state, New Hampshire, very important in our state uh, to protect our environment, to have a strong economy, and to uh, protect the environment at the same time. And I believe we can do both. So I got engaged on this and involved with Crest because I've seen too much time and time and again that the policy in Washington is sort of, you got this far left 
um, that thinks that, uh, that, that takes positions that are economically unviable. And then you've got far right that would say, oh, climate change isn't real. Well, the reality is that there's a lot in between, um, a lot of conservative, sensible, uh, Republican policies about conservation that make sense, that are market-driven, that support entrepreneurship, that support advanced technologies, that support research and development that can benefit everyone. And so I got interested because I, I'm tired of this debate being too far, like a political football on both sides. And Cress is really a group that supports center-right policies and supports conservative policies, focused on making sure that we have a strong economy, a strong environment, and that Republicans are leading on this issue. For too long, you know, the discussion was Republicans don't have ideas in this space. Well, we do have a lot of ideas, and they're good ideas. They're consistent with conservative principles. But having a group that can help those Republicans champion these ideas, that really didn't exist before. And so I was interested um, after post-Senate of getting involved with this group because I saw such a need in this space. So what are some of those ideas? What are some of the keystone, you think, conservative ideas for addressing climate change? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, conservatives often focus on, we think that sort of the regulatory state in Washington stymies entrepreneurship, uh, stymies innovative ideas. And in the green space, it's no different. Unfortunately, many of the established technologies and industries thwart new green technology. And that's because the regulations were set up for old technologies. They were set up uh, for, that didn't anticipate whether it was fuel cells or didn't anticipate uh, new ways that we were going to use uh, modular nuclear or didn't anticipate uh, you know, how hydro would develop or solar would develop. And so innovating and making sure that our regulations don't thwart new green technologies, very Republican idea, but important. Because I've seen it even the private sector where um, you know, being involved, for example, I was served for a period on Bloom Energy's board, fuel cells, where I've seen where legacy regulations actually thwart the implementation of excellent new technology that reduces emissions and protects the environment. And we can't have that. Other ideas, uh, I think very focused on research and development, making sure we can, let's solve the storage problem. The federal government can do that and help with that, but let's make the research available to everyone in the private sector and in the public sector to innovate. Uh, let's make sure that uh, we have a grid that can take the renewables, that not only is gonna protect the country, but is modernized in a way that the new technologies, the renewable energy can be received by this grid and can be used every, by everyone efficiently. Those are all ideas that, by the way, both sides should be for, but Republicans are for these things. And sometimes I think that uh, people report Republicans aren't for anything. Um, there's some great bills, like for example, uh, Susan Collins and um, Senator Alexander, they have a bill on electric vehicles. How are we going to lead on electric vehicles? Let's make sure we beat China on this. Let's make sure that we reduce uh, our emissions that are coming from the vehicles. That's a huge chunk of really what happens in terms of not only carbon, but other emissions in this country. And if we can lead on electric vehicles, 
then that's going to be great for our economy, but it's also great for our environment. So those are some of the things I think Republicans are for. So do you think the idea that Republicans don't have any solutions, is that because Republicans weren't as engaged on this in the past and now they are more so, or just it wasn't as publicized? Why is there that disconnect? I think there's a disconnect because the the media truthfully has focused a lot on the Republicans that deny climate change. And that, that becomes an easy talking point, right? So we, we move beyond that discussion. Uh, first of all, I believe in climate change. Many Republicans do. Uh, but moving beyond that means, okay, what are we going to do to protect the environment from all emissions and conservation? And instead of just do you believe or don't you believe, okay, what's your solution? What's going to help? And what's going to make things better for the next generation for the current generation um, in terms of conserving what is our, our most precious research, resource, which is our natural environment. Uh, so I think that's probably why some of these Republican ideas haven't gotten as much attention because the, the discussion and the focus has always been over, over on do you believe or don't you believe? Well, let's move beyond that. Um, I actually think a lot, most people have, frankly. On Capitol Hill or just the general In populace? general. I think yeah. out in the streets, I know they have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know they have. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think one thing that Democrats might point to is leadership in the Senate under Senator McConnell, that he would not really want to put up a strong climate bill, that that wouldn't be a priority of his at the very least. So the Republicans who do engage on this maybe aren't even getting the traction they would like to see. So what do you say to people who, who just say, well, look, you can't work with Republicans because the leadership at the very least is not enabling us? I think it's all fascinating because both sides love to point the finger on the other. But I like to remind people that when President Obama was elected, and he had both the House and the Senate. I don't recall any major climate uh, bills coming to the Senate floor or to the House floor when he owned it all, when he had their party had it all. And so I would argue that this has become a politically convenient football for people. So it's been like, okay, uh, they're in charge, so we can't do anything. And then the other side says, well, we're, we're, they're in charge, so we can't do anything. Well, there's a lot of things we can do that maybe isn't sweeping climate legislation, whether it's storage, whether it's electric vehicles, whether it's modernizing the grid. There's so much we could do that could advance protecting our climate that I think both parties could get around. And I'm not convinced. I actually think that uh, Leader McConnell would put bills like that on the floor. Uh, I don't think you're right. I don't think he's going to put a sweeping climate bill on the floor because I don't think he thinks there's enough political support for that, even if he himself doesn't believe it. One thing I know from having been in the Senate, even if he doesn't personally believe something, if he feels enough members on both sides of the aisle believe something, he may put it on the floor anyway and just vote against it. It is interesting how the you know the information cycles work because that concept like the Green New Deal gets a lot of attention and it did really invigorate a debate I think on both sides. But you mentioned earlier that that's kind of an extreme proposal. So talk a bit about like what you see not working in that and is there anything from that kind of more sweeping economic change uh, to reduce emissions that you think is good? I mean, there's so much that doesn't work in that deal. I think that's unrealistic. That um, would have a very negative impact on average Americans that uh, I don't even know where to begin. Um, what we need is realistic policies of things that make sense that actually enhance the lives of average Americans, not restrict their ability to do certain things. 
and not make their lives more costly. And that's my, that's what I've seen on the economic analyses of Green New Deal. So that's not going to fly. Do you think it has helped, you know, invigorate a conversation at the very least? Does it yeah, at all I help? agree with you there. I think it, I think it has prompted a conversation. And, um, you know, even somebody like Matt Gates, who has the Green Real Deal, has acknowledged there's even a couple of common points, like modernizing the grid, um, research and development. There are a couple of common points that even he uh, and Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez can agree on. So I think that, yes, the discussion is important. And it also puts a stark contrast of where are you going to stand? Are you going to stand for uh, policies that are completely unrealistic in terms of implementing and what the impact would be on average American lives? Or are you going to really embrace more common sense centric policies that we can implement right now that wouldn't economically harm the lives of Americans, in fact, would enhance them? Why is it so hard then to get these things done, to get these bills passed? Uh, unfortunately, everything moves way too slowly in Washington. I've lived it. I've experienced it. And Washington gets distracted, right? I mean, you look at, there's a big fight on immigration right now. I'm not saying immigration is not an important issue. Big fight on some people want to impeach the president, some don't. You can have your position there. But everyone gets caught up in these peripheral fights sometimes, and it takes up time from some of these common sense center policies that, hey, we could all get behind, we could get done. You know, we hear from listeners that they are just so, I think, tired of the partisanship. They almost don't believe it when they see it. They are tired. <laughs> I get it. Now, I mean, now I'm not in the Senate and I see, I see how tired people are and rightly so. I will say, though, um, I know from my own experience, I'll use a different example. Um, I worked on the issue of addressing our heroin epidemic. And on that, um, for example, on the Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act, we had two Republicans, two Democrats, and it took us two years, but we got it done. And we can do that. There are still members of Congress that want to work together. Uh, we've seen even some of, the bill some of the things that I've identified, whether it's storage, whether it's electric vehicles, there is bipartisan support for uh, those ideas, uh, research and development. So let's get behind the ideas and if if a group of members from both sides of the aisle push hard enough, they can get something to the floor if they bug their leadership hard enough and just refuse to go away on it. Do you think that will happen? Do you see there being enough lawmakers on both sides who would come together in a good faith effort to uh, make that happen? I hope so. Uh, I have ever continue to have ever optimism and faith. Uh, but I hope what does not happen is because we're heading into a presidential election, that everyone just becomes so focused on that and not doing the business that needs to be done for the people in the interim. We are still more than a year away from that election. But it's unbelievable, right? <laughs> right. I mean, people focus a year out. and We have a whole year to do business, the people's business. Let's do it. It does feel like there's already been, like, hold on till past election, you know. Yeah, it's like, okay, how long are we going to hold? Like, we got elected for this whole period, not just to say, okay, a year waiting going into an election, right? Right. So, 
You mentioned a few areas that are common that you think could could move forward on grid modernization, energy storage, et cetera. What about the fossil fuel piece? That seems to be where the sticking point comes in. It's, you know, some people more on the left, progressive saying we need to get off of fossil fuels. The science dictates that they are carbon emitting. We can't afford to have that in our environment. Other people want to maybe give a lifeline to fossil fuels through carbon capture. Others just say this is just part of our energy mix full stop. Just it's all of the above. I guess, how do you see the fossil fuel sticking point uh, playing out here? I find this discussion, first of all, I, I'm in the camp of the all the above piece. And I believe when it comes to fossil fuels, we should use our best technology and our best entrepreneurship and ideas to when we use fossil fuels to ensure that we reduce emissions. We also uh, do the best when we're extracting to protect and conserve our environment because we're pretty smart and we can figure these things out. And we've seen that happen. Um, We've seen that happen with uh, technologies, whether it's, um, you know, reducing emissions at coal plants uh, time and time and again, that we can use innovation to reduce the impact of fossil fuels. And so carbon capture, I'm all for it. Why not? Why wouldn't we? At some point, it'd be fantastic to get to all renewables. And I, I think that is a wonderful and important goal to have. But let's make sure that I think the people who are saying, um, eliminate fossil fuels are being unrealistic right now. If you look at the statistics of why we have seen reduction in carbon emissions in this country, one of the biggest factors has been natural gas. So to suddenly say we're going to eliminate natural gas until we have uh, a position where we can rely fully on renewables or even our grid can take fully renewables, we're not even there yet, or we have storage perfected, to me is unrealistic. Do you think the U.S. should develop more fossil fuels, opening up, say, public lands in Alaska or other places? Well, I think you've got to look at each situation um, and look at the situation and see what you're going to do to protect the environment. One of the things that's in the Green Real Deal is actually allowing the use of uh, public lands for development of renewables. So this discussion isn't an exclusive about whether we're going to drill in a particular location on public lands, but it should be, okay, why, if we're thinking of, if we're transitioning to renewables, how do we use our public lands to uh, enhance our reliance on renewables? And that's actually in the Green Real Deal. So final question here, you mentioned, you know, a hope for lawmakers coming together, pushing for these centrist, bipartisan, clean energy and climate uh, laws and solutions. But do you acknowledge that some members of the party I guess more so in the White House, I think the current administration under the Trump administration has has taken a different tact. They are pro-coal. I guess, do you just see there sort of being two camps within the Republican Party on this? Uh, or how do you view that? I actually don't think there's two camps. I think what President Trump has hit on is it's not so much, he's, he frames it in terms of coal, but it's really not about coal. It's about the people that have been left behind. It's about the people in West Virginia that don't, that worked in coal mines, but we haven't, we haven't figured out how we're going to provide them with a transition to the new energy that's coming online. Um, we haven't given them, you know, the economic uplift of doing something different or retraining them to do something different. And I think that's why he hit on this issue originally. And to me, um, the focus of on coal is actually, it's, it's 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 a, another issue really that that they're trying to get at and 
the reality is coal is moving on out of its own weight, <laughs> meaning natural gas is replacing it, renewables are going to replace it naturally. And so the people that work in those fields, we do need to acknowledge that we need to help them, we need to retrain them, we need to give them new opportunities. And so that's where I think you'll find some alignment in the Republican Party. And I don't think it's a, a shift. I think uh, we're going to continue to see Republicans actually shift more to the reality of where we are um, with natural gas, shift to renewables, and development of advanced energy technologies. Well, I think a lot of people would love to see that. I know folks that uh, listen to this. Thanks so much for sharing your insights. Thanks, Julia. Appreciate it. And that's a wrap for this week's show. We've got one more episode coming in 2019, and it features Dave Roberts of Vox, so you won't want to miss that. But for now, so long. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.